Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. If you want to impose more costs on the people I represent, well, I don't think they're for it. Uh, but it's a matter of what those costs are, how high they are, and, and who's, who's got a park. So I think it'll continue to develop. Uh, I saw Angus has you know, signed off a deal with the UK for uh, technical discussions around carbon capture and storage and nuclear and all of those other different type technologies. Uh, that those things will advance uh, regardless of what agreement Australia may or may not come to. Hello, lovely people. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host and political editor of Guardian Australia. And in the way of COVID, uh, I am, uh, yes, uh, Keith and I are waving to one another. Uh, My guest this week is Keith Pitt, who's the Minister for Resources and Water. And uh, we're together in this parliamentary sitting week but apart, I am actually recording in my office and Keith is recording in his office so that we don't, uh, well, what, what would you say, offend offend the COVID gods? I hope we don't want to have a, a, a potential breach, Catherine. No, it's probably the, exactly. probably the main way in, in, any, in any number of ways. Exactly. So if we sound a little bit strange periodically, that is why, but I'm sure we're going to sound fantastic. So thank you for coming on the show, Keith. I appreciate it. And I want to start with the easiest question of all. You'll love this. Um, Why aren't you in the Cabinet anymore? (laughs) That's a fabulous question. Of course, I'm disappointed, Catherine, and people could see your face. They'd they'd see that you're you're having a giggle at yourself as well, which is great. I mean, look, they're not my decisions to make. Of course, I'm disappointed, but, I mean, it hasn't made any difference to what I'm doing in the portfolio or the work. Uh, that's just continued. I've still got the uh, the same people uh, working for me and out working hard for the, the resources sector and working in water and trying to deliver for the country. And this is, uh, I open with a slightly facetious question, just if you've missed the background of this, uh, Keith is a Queensland national. Obviously, we've had a change in leadership uh, of the National Party in recent months. That's why he is still a minister, but not in the cabinet. This, And I open facetiously, but this is actually a serious question because I don't know the answer to it. So now that you're not in cabinet anymore, you're a minister, but you're not in cabinet, does that mean that you are bound by cabinet solidarity on a range of issues? Oh, it's a really, really good question. It's not one I've mm. asked, but I'm happy to test. <laughs> so I'll find out very quickly if I am. Well, yes. Well, well, well we, we might test it a little bit of this conversation, but it's just, yeah, I, 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 I honestly don't know the answer. Do oh, you? Well, you look, don't I, either. Well, yeah, no, but I mean, the, the Westminster system say that you're in the executive, you support the government. Uh, and, you know, there's no doubt about that. I'll continue to support the government its position. Uh, and I'll continue to fight for what matters for, for our people. And, and by our people, I mean those out in regional Australia who tend to do it tough every now and again, as you know. 
Mm. And just one more on leadership just before we move on because the, the, I want the bulk of this conversation to be around significant issues in your portfolio at the moment. Uh, I mentioned before, obviously, we've had the change of leadership in the National Party. Barnaby Joyce is back in the top job. Uh, you know, he's sort of uh, held up as the sort of, you know, man who can talk to Queensland amongst various other labels. Um, how is the reception for the new uh, leadership uh, well, for, for Barnaby Joyce? How is the reception for him at home? Is it, wow, the great God's back? Is it mixed? Uh, one of your colleagues who I was talking to earlier in the day said, oh, well, he's very polarising, so the reaction's very polarising or polarised. How would you rate it? Oh, well, he was at the LNP State Conference uh, over the last week or so and was you know, strongly supported and and <laughs> you can never be all things to all people, Catherine, as you know. Uh, and, and in this game, I mean, we're, we're just out there fighting the good fight. We're, we're, we're here for a reason. We're here for a purpose. We want to deliver on it. And when it comes to the nationals, I mean, it, it, it's the brand and the party. Uh, le- leaders come and go. Uh, the party room changes over a period of time. And you've been around for a little while now. You've probably seen uh, most things, I would imagine. Uh, this is nothing that's unusual. But, you know, we're, we're in this game uh, to be in government and to deliver on the policies uh, of the membership and the people people that put us here. Oh, look, I know you're a good man and you're very disciplined, but that, that was a very nice step around the question. Um, uh, obviously, of course, you're a strong supporter of the government. Obviously, you support your leader. I'm just genuinely interested. What is, what are, what's the feedback from your constituents? Are people pleased there's been a change of leader? Are they confused by it? What's the, uh, well, I mean, it's sort of stupid to have, obviously, it won't be uniform is what I suspect. So anyway, what what is the What's the report card? Oh, well, I think it's a bit early, to be honest. Uh, and, and in the midst of the COVID pandemic, if I, if I think about it, in the last um, you know, couple of weeks, it's not something that anyone's actually raised with me, uh, that they really are buried in their own issues. Mm. Um, you know, am, am I safe from COVID? Will I get sick? Do I have a job next week? I mean, they're the things that matter to them, mm. uh, the, the internal going, goings on down here unless it directly affects them, uh, that they don't take a lot of notice. I mean, the, the main game is dealing with the outbreak uh, making sure we get our economy and keep the economy on track. Yes. Yeah, well, that's that's sort of interesting in and of itself, isn't it, really? Um, let's get on to the portfolio now, and I want to start with gas and the gas-fired recovery. I sort of detect, and there's been some reporting about it, not masses, but there has been some reporting that there's angst building up amongst gas users, people who, who've heard the mantra of the gas-fired recovery, heard the government talking about it, but don't feel as though they're getting any benefit from it. Uh, Spot prices have sort of gone up in recent times. Uh, There's been some companies around quoted on the record, you know, saying things are really tough for us. Um, There's also been calls over the last, I think it's the last week, I'm on COVID time, so perhaps it was the week before, I don't know. But recently, uh, there have been calls from business associations to invoke the domestic gas security mechanism. Which is, I think, in plain language, that's the that's the gas reservation, right? Is there a, is there a case for that? Well, firstly, uh, it is about the big exporters in Queensland in terms of the ADGSM, and it it wouldn't uh, take effect uh, until next year uh, if the trigger was pulled. But I mean, we, we need to look at how we got here. So fundamentally, those spikes have been in Victoria, 
I mean, this this is a state which had a moratorium on gas exploration for, I think, seven or eight years onshore. And if you don't develop your resource and replace those resources as they come to the end of their normal and natural life, well, you run out of gas. Now, the concept that we could actually shift Victoria's entire demand uh, from Queensland or the Northern, Northern Territory or elsewhere uh, into that market and be as competitive as the gas that's produced locally is just nonsense, right? It, it can't be done. I mean, if, if it could, you'd have Melbourne's drinking water coming from cans. Uh, the, the reality is that it costs more money because it has to be transported and it takes more infrastructure. And there were a combination of circumstances in Victoria. I mean, Longford had a maintenance issue, which meant their production was reduced. Uh, there were some challenges in terms of demand. Uh, there was a, quite a lot put across uh, to gas peakers because it was calm, cold and cloudy. Uh, and, of course, intermittent wind and solar couldn't do what it does on days when it's hot, sunny and windy. Uh, and you know, th- these are the outcomes. And as I've said in industry before, if you want cheap, reliable, affordable gas that's consistent, well, move to where the gas is. And unfortunately, you've got a state in Victoria that doesn't really want to develop its onshore resources. Uh, that means as the Bass Strait declines, uh, and it is, uh, there will be shortfalls uh, in the medium term. But is it just in your mind, this issue of a reservation? And if folks listening don't understand what we're talking about, what we mean by that is that there is a proportion of of natural gas that's reserved for onshore use. Obviously, we export a lot of gas or, well, the bulk of it really, right? So the debate over the last couple of years has been, do we reserve some of that supply for domestic users? So uh, is that is that an option in your mind that that security mechanism gets triggered? Or in your mind, is this just a matter of if you increase supply, the price will drop? Oh, if only it was that easy, Catherine. Um, I mean, if we, if we look at how this actually works, I mean, we, we've signed a heads of agreement with the big gas exporters out of Queensland. Uh, they offer uncontracted gas into the market before it's exported. So in terms of supply up there, uh, there there's ample oodles, heaps, uh, but the reality is it's a long way to Victoria and that's where a lot of the manufacturing need is and it's been built off the Bass Strait supply for the last almost 50 years. I mean, that, that's just the, the, the reality of uh, how these things have been developed. So we need to make sure we continue to put gas into the market in Victoria because that's where a lot of the demand is uh, and it is demand uh, as well around heating and cooking and appliances and hot water systems and all those things that happen domestically. Uh, in terms of what else we can do, well, we're looking to expand the Wallambilla hub, uh, and that means that there will be uh, more transparency around some of those transactions. Uh, we're looking to develop the Beetaloo in the Northern Territory and tie that into the East Coast gas market. Uh, but this is, you know, it's like a river system. It's like the electricity system that they're all the same. There are constraints uh, around their deliverability depending on distance and location. It's a really, really big country. Uh, there are opportunities uh, in the future. But in terms of the short to medium term demand, uh, you know, there's a lot of work going on around storage, for example, uh, in Victoria. So you can you can fill a few peaks and troughs. Uh, we're looking at uh, trying to develop additional infrastructure in terms of pipelines and compression facilities. But the best thing we can do in Victoria is to bring on more of their own resources into the existing market and existing infrastructure. When you said a minute ago, what you what you say to users is if if you don't have the gas, move to where it is. Like, do you mean that literally? Like, if you've, uh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at. Uh, well, you know, let's get down to some basics of federation here. If we have competition between the states, uh, whether it's around those fundamentals for gas price, gas availability, power price, power reliability, 
um, infrastructure, uh, all the things that are the fundamentals of business. You know, we, we've, we've got to make sure that the states don't leave the Commonwealth on the hook for things which are firstly not our decision and secondly, certainly not our fault. You, you can't be a state that doesn't develop your own resources and then blame everybody else uh, when things go wrong. Now, this is exactly what's happened in Victoria. I want them to be successful. I genuinely do. I mean, we've opened up some offshore exploration areas, uh, offshore Victoria. They're around some existing structures uh, where they can you know, add into existing infrastructure and pipelines and compression facilities uh, if they can get those developed. Uh, but off the back of that, I've got the opposition opposing <laughs> those things we're trying to do. So the balance is pretty straightforward. We get more gas into the system in Victoria, and that is the supply and demand piece. Uh, we look to ensure that we can provide uh, contingency supplies from other areas, uh, but it's a big, complex equation, and the fundamentals for business always remain the same. I'm not hearing, though, in any of this, any sort of support, either implicit or explicit, for triggering that security mechanism. Oh, well, no, not at the moment. I don't think it's needed. And as I said, it wouldn't take place until next year. And if the heads of agreement is being met, which it is, then those big exporters in Queensland are offering their uncontracted gas into the market. So it's there available for purchase, but there's constraints as to where it can be delivered to. As I said, it's a very long way from the Queensland border to Melbourne. So, but... <sighs> Just sort of getting back to this idea that if you're in the wrong state, we'll move and we are trying, you know, with respect to everybody's responsibilities in the Federation to get the Victorians to bring more gas on stream, right? Like that's sort of paraphrasing you. That's We're trying to do that, but that's not inside our control. It's a complicated system, you know. <laughs> I'm still, I'm sorry, I'm still struggling with move into, move into state, how you would pick up a, you know, sort of major manufacturing operation and, and you know, relocate it literally to another state. It's sort of like it's it's easy to say, but it's kind of impossible to do. So then... Oh, it's not, not, not impossible, Catherine. I mean, they're, they're, when, well, when facilities come to the end of their usual life, uh, they do look at whether they reinvest to reinvigorate that facility or it is better for them to shift and build something new. I mean, that, that happens with business all the time. Now, I'm not saying this is something we want to see happen, uh, but it's the reality of where we're at. Uh, we continue to have states uh, who knock things out. I mean, New South Wales is just as bad. Uh, you look at what's happened in Narrabri and they, they're now you know, removing permits and other things which are already out there. I mean, how, how do exploration companies and gas producers have consistency in their policy when this space keeps moving? And these are significant investments. I mean, we're talking billions of dollars. In terms of the infrastructure, you mean transmission infrastructure? Is that what you mean? Oh, and the, and the development. I mean, you, you've still got to develop wells and tie it all together and have all your pipelines and everything else uh, that goes as part of, part of the development. And, and it costs literally billions. These are big investment decisions. But, okay, so look, reading between the lines here, nothing can happen quickly, right? You can't sort of completely upend a system, uh, open up a whole bunch of new supply, build the transmission infrastructure to get it around the country. All of that can't happen within the next five minutes. But then what companies, and I suspect a lot of voters have heard, though, is the government saying, we're going to have a gas-fired recovery, Ryan. And notwithstanding your, your point, which is correct, that you can't you have a responsibility in the Federation. The states have other responsibilities. You've got to differentiate what those responsibilities are so voters, in essence, know whose door to knock on if things aren't working. But you're the guys that have been up front saying, 
Yoo-hoo, we're going to have a gas-fired recovery. Um, well, I think the sort of the growing feeling around gas users certainly is, no, we're not. So why did you say that? And there is a growing anger or buyer's remorse about this. So what does the government intend to do about that? Well, I mean, we can get stuff online uh, much quicker. Uh, and, you know, if we look at the Victorian problem, offshore Victoria is the solution that could be done in the short to medium term because there is existing infrastructure, there is existing distribution, and they can tap into uh, some reserves and basins that, you know, we believe are there and people are out exploring and drilling wells in uh, right now, to be honest. Uh, and, and that can happen relatively quickly because you don't have to build all that additional capacity. If we look at the medium term, uh, these are the reasons that I put money forward and we put over $200 million into the Beedaloo Basin because we think we can get it developed a couple of years earlier uh, and, you know, that's expected to drag on some 6,000 jobs in the next 20 years. So, you know, these are important decisions uh, into the future and off the back of that, I expect to see, you know, manufacturing in Darwin, for example. Uh, we know that it would be a good location for additional fuel storage. So we can build these pieces into hubs uh, and in regional centres. I mean, Gladstone's another great location, whether it's a pipeline into Mackay, and business will do the rest. If you get the fundamentals right, they'll make those decisions and they'll get on with it. But it's uh, but again, it's sort of like on the buyer's remorse point. It's sort of like you're talking about a plan that that is is a decade or or more really in terms of how how you bring on um, you know that that or make those connections. And we'll get onto the climate implications in a tick. But just sort of sticking with the government's own warrants and rhetoric, it's sort of like. You didn't say, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not personalising you with this with you, Keith, because there's a lot of people using this rhetoric. But you guys didn't say, let's have a gas-fired recovery open brackets in a decade. Like you didn't say that. You said uh, you gave people the impression that this would happen immediately, and it's it's not happening immediately. So then what what do you do? Where, where are the lines of responsibility? Like if some of these, uh, you know, people who need gas as feedstock go to the wall in the next 12 months, 18 months, two years, and, uh, you know, if, if, that, if that happens, does the government bail them out? Is the government responsible for that uh, because you didn't deliver your gas-fired recovery? I'm just like, where, where does this story end? Oh, well, well let's, let's look at some of the facts. I mean, the most recent ACCC report, said that prices were around $6 in terms of what's offered, and that and that's actually really competitive. Uh, at, at $6 for electricity generation, for example, you're, you're well into the market. And the things that we are doing in the short term, which will drag on, is, well, we change the heads of agreement so that additional gas for the big exporters in Queensland is offered into the domestic market. Uh, we're looking to bring forward the Beedaloo, and we think that that could get going by 2025, 2026. Offshore Victoria is a short-term uh, prospect. I mean, there's people looking at the potential for import terminals for gas into particular locations, and without getting into the, the details of those commercial discussions, uh, there's any number of ways to, to skin this cat, Catherine. Uh, and, yeah, we're determined to make it happen. But if someone goes to the wall, does the government bail them out? Yeah, but, I mean, who's going to the wall right now? Well, I mean, ACCC is saying $6, $6 a gigajoule, and that's actually pretty, pretty good. And there is a lot of complexity around those contracts uh, in terms of, you know, when the demand's at, uh, how, how much, when, for how long, 
Uh, and those commercial arrangements take some time to put together in terms of the contracts. But look, I'm aware of you know, once a significantly longer contract that occurred in the last couple of weeks, uh, and you do always get this competitive tension between producers and, and, and manufacturers. Mm. <laughs> Everyone's looking to make sure their bottom line's stronger. My, my job is to make sure that the balance is right. But where do you line up in that debate? Do you line up with the producers or do you line up with the, the price takers, the manufacturers? I line up with Australia. You know, what, what's in our interest? What's in the national interest? Uh, what's in the interest of the people that I represent? How do I make sure they've got a job? I mean, this, this is how we strike those balances. So uh, Angus has got his part of the portfolio around gas and how they get it around the country. Mine's finding this stuff, getting it up out of the ground and developed. Uh, and that's what we're doing with the strategic basin plans. Mm-hmm. Now, let's think about the climate implications of all of this. You and I are not going to have the same view about this, but anyway, let's thrash it out. That's what a surprise. <laughs> let's, let's, thrash, Outrageous. let's thrash this out like intelligent people. Um, so does, does it not give you any pause for thought that at a time when the International Energy Agency, when the world is, uh, you know, at, at a well, uh, I won't say tipping point because that language is not very precise, but where all the evidence points to no further fossil fuel development if we want to have a habitable planet. Like, you're going in exactly the opposite direction. Does that give you any cause for pause? Well, I look at what we've committed to uh, and what we've already achieved. And uh, as you know, and you would have heard this before, 20% reduction on 2005 levels. We've committed to the 2030 target. And we're actually delivering on that, unlike a lot of other countries out there that make a lot of noise and don't actually get anything done. Now, as you know, Catherine, our contribution is a bit over 1% in terms of world emissions. Yes, we export a lot of coal, uh, but the responsibility on how that's managed is is in the country that does the purchasing. Uh, And my view is still that as technology develops, there will be opportunities and options to maintain our existing infrastructure, whether that's coal-fired power stations or gas or others, and still get good outcomes for emissions. So, you know, if if you believe in the technology and the way that this is heading over a period of time, they are the solutions. And, you know, mate, I've got, to, I've got to say, I get sick of people like the EU punching us in the face uh, when the reality is 69% of their energy comes from coal, oil or gas. So, you know, we're always the horrible people in this. We're a very small contribution in terms of world contributions. We're doing our part. We're doing more than many others. Uh, and yet you constantly read about, uh, you know, how bad is Australia in this space? Well, it's just nonsense. Well, Australia is bad in the sense that you're the the you're not talking about status quo in terms of fossil fuel use. You're talking about actually expanding supply and you say, okay, well, we're not responsible for the, the exported emissions, as it were, the scope three emissions. That's that's someone else's problem. That's whomever we're selling to. But the fact of the matter if, and, and you're correct, you're absolutely correct to say that we're a very I small proportion. I will stop the interview there, Catherine. No, 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 no. You're correct to say that we're a small proportion of global emissions, but we're a huge exporter of emissions and, uh, and in terms of uh, the way that the, you know, you've talked about the, you use punches in the face, but that is that is where the trade environment is going, where there will be some sort of efforts to not protect but equalise uh, people's sort of carbon intensity. That's like, it's as obvious as the nose on your face. So you can't really sit back and say, oh, well, that's someone else's problem because we're exporting it because that is that doesn't actually reflect 
where the trade environment is going. So, yeah, it's sort of like, again, it's my confusion. It's the smart bloke confusion because you are a smart bloke. So I can't really understand uh, why you're sort of you, why you're so full force into fossil fuels all the way when you know that the party on that stuff is coming to an end. I mean, we can all see it. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't agree. I think it's around for some decades to come. I mean, let, let's look at the, the trade perspective. I mean, the, the CBM prospect, the, the carbon tariff the EU is putting out. Well, if they want to be full and frank about that. Uh, you know, do it on, on an emissions basis. So that means they should put a tariff onto China that's 20% plus, uh, tariffs onto India, Australia should be down at 1%. Now, do you, do you really think they're going to do that? Uh, and no one wants to get into a trade war, Catherine. We, we, we don't. But I don't think we should stand around while people uh, look to put in protective measures for their own industries, because that's what it is. So regardless of uh, you know, whether it's a carbon tariff or, or otherwise, it's a tariff. It protects their domestic industry. Uh, they still take over $2 billion worth of Australia's coal into the EU. Uh, they still use lignite. Uh, they still have a, a, an enormous amount of use of oil and gas and other fossil fuels, uh, and yet they want to penalise their trading partners on, off the basis of that ideology. Now, I just don't agree with that. I think it's wrong, uh, and I think we should be out there ensuring we put those views forward. If you're going to have a rules-based system for trade, we have a rules-based system for trade. Yeah, but the rules-based system uh, involves um, a, a level playing field and, and the problem is the absence of a level playing field in Australia, that we are not taking the abatement steps that other nations are are taking and that's that's what that whole CBAM discussion is predicated on. But it's sort of like uh, you and I, I think, could align on this if all you were talking about is um, being genuinely technology neutral. If you if we were talking about we need a bit of gas in the transition, probably, although at least in a power sector sense, it's not the cheapest option, not not even close to being the cheapest option. If you're saying we're a carbon intensive economy, it's in our interests to develop sequestration, sweat the life of the assets while capping or trying to, you know, ameliorate the the emissions. Like I I wouldn't have a quarrel with you, but in fact you're saying let's have all things. Let's let's uh let's expand our fossil fuel extractions. Um, let's export them and who cares because it's not our problem under the way the international rules are formulated. And uh, and then uh, we'll do a bit on, on CCS and, uh, and on negative emissions technology and all of this sort of stuff because somehow that circle will square itself. Well, it, it won't. It, 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 it won't. Not if we keep... Uh, you know, sort of, uh, not if we start, not if we don't start to make this transition, right? Like, do you just accept that that, that we will never have to make a transition or, or argue that we will never have to make the transition? Well, no, I think technology will continue to change over a period of time, but I, I live in the world of the reality. And the reality is New Zealand's made all sorts of noise, but their actual emissions reductions nowhere near Australia's. And they're now importing coal from Indonesia. I mean... <laughs> If we go to um, you know, the, the US, uh, Japan, uh, China, India, their emissions uh, in terms of reductions, some, some of them actually gone up substantially, and yet we're out there with a 20% reduction. So I, I think into the future, those countries will make decisions of their own of how they manage that, whether they do it through offsets, whether they do it through technology, that, that is a matter for them. Uh, but what I know is in the midst of the pandemic, Australia's resources industry continued to provide 
uh, through not only the logistics and supply chains but into our major trading partners, sources of energy that those countries would have been lost without. Can, can you imagine in the midst of the pandemic, Japan loses its supply of coal and gas and can't run its hospitals? Uh, the same into South Korea. So I'm actually proud of what the industry's done. I think they've done a phenomenal piece of work. Uh, and it was really important that there would have been absolute chaos in many of those countries if all the lights went out uh, in the midst of the pandemic. And Australia has really uh, certainly cemented its reputation as a reliable supplier of a very high quality product. What about net zero? Well, it's a very broad question. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you've said bits and pieces on the record about this. Uh, we can see where the Prime Minister is trying to go. There is talk around the government of a handful of options being worked up in an effort to try and court the support from the Nationals' party room in order to make this transition net zero, yes or no? Oh, what's the proposal? I mean, how's it going to be done? What's it going to cost? Well, you're the, well, you're the government. who's paying? You're the government. Yeah, but I mean, there's... Well, you're the but, government. But this is, this is the debate. Uh, so, you know, if you want to put something to the Nationals' party room or the Liberal Party room for that matter, you need to know what the proposal is, how much it's going to cost and who's going to pay. Uh, that that's some of the fundamentals of the discussion. So maybe I'm just trying to <laughs> just try to interpret your remarks. Is it? Oh no, no, if, my my remarks. I mean, that's exactly what I've said consistently for a long period of time. Uh, if you want to impose more costs on the people I represent, well, I don't think they're for it. Uh, but it's a matter of what those costs are, how high they are, and and who's who's got to pay. It'll continue to develop. Uh, I saw Angus has you know, signed off a deal with the UK for. Uh, technical discussions around carbon capture and storage and nuclear and all of those other different type technologies, uh, that those things will advance uh, regardless uh, of what agreement Australia may or, not, may or not come to. But you know, the one thing I will say is that it's a decision for us, for the Australian government and the Australian people. It's not one for the WTO or the United Nations or the EU. It's our decision. It's one made by the government of the day that's put there by the people of Australia. And they generally are pretty clear in what their views are and there's election coming, I'm sure we'll find out. But uh, but Australia's already signed the Paris Agreement. You say it's not it's not for the EU or the UN or or whomever. No, well we voluntarily signed the Paris Agreement, which basically commits Australia to certain undertakings and to a process of ratcheting up the undertakings. So, you know, if we're not going to be led by the UN on climate change, should we get out of Paris? Yeah, but once again, 30 years is a long period of time for things to develop. You look at where we were 30 years ago. I was 80 kilos and didn't have a grey hair. I mean, you know, this, is, this is just the, the reality of how things change uh, and technology moves just so very, very quickly. Uh, you know, the next one is around the corner. We, we, Catherine, and this is something you and I have had arguments about before. Uh, you know, people are out there telling me battery technology will be the solution for all things. Well, you know, the, the engineer and the, the one that looks at physics in me says that that's just nonsense. <laughs> it's not, I just can't see that happening because I, I want to see something that's affordable and reliable and I don't think it's there yet. Now, will it change in the future? It may well change in the future. Uh, but I don't know what will happen in 30 years. Otherwise, I'd be on the winner in race nine in Melbourne. But sort of just picking that up, and I don't want to. I want to get to water quickly before we wrap wrap up. Um, so I don't want to. I don't want to labour the point here. But when you say, okay, batteries won't cut it, batteries won't do it. The engineer in me says batteries won't do it, and you are an engineer. I'm not. I, I you know, I defer to your engineering expertise. But but like, am I meant to interpret this statement to mean that there won't be a transition? 
using technology that already exists, the technology that's right in front of us, that's solar and, and wind, firmed solar and wind and pumped hydro, are you saying the only, the only transition that will occur if, in fact, a transition happens at all will be via a sequestration route, that it will be via coal and gas and we'll deal with the emissions problem by burying it in the ground? Is that the only transition that you can get your head around? Oh, no, no, not at all. Uh, but I support things that work. Now, there are places where those hybrid combinations are the right solution. Uh, but it's not if you want to run uh, you know, an aluminium smelter. It, it just isn't. Um, th- there's a lot of ways to uh, deliver electricity. And you know, the difference between having a thousand mega- $1,000 a megawatt hour diesel generator in remote Australia that can be supplemented with wind and solar uh, compared to something which is a base load uh, facility right next to some of your biggest load points. I mean, these are some of the technical engineering problems. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds on this, but I mean, it's just the reality of physics and how electricity works. So do you want a battery on your house? Well, knock yourself out. I mean, if that's that's good, but I, I, I'm pretty confident you're not going to run your air conditioner, your dryer, your fastball kettle, your toaster, and a number of other things all at the same time from a battery over nighttime. I mean, it's, once again, we come back to physics. So it's about application. It's about doing things that work and getting the right balance. That's that's my view. Just very quickly before we move on to water, did you read that Beyond Zero Emissions report that that um, said that the transition is opportunity for Gladstone and laid that out in a fair bit of detail with some modelling from ASIL Tasman? Uh, well, you had me till you got to ASIL, Alan. Um, <laughs> what, I, what, not a fan? No, not a fan. I mean, look, I've looked at some of those and, and, and yeah, there's opportunities in all things. Uh, but, but once again, I don't think you're going to replace every heavy industry job in Gladstone with, with a hydrogen solution. Uh, I, just, I just don't. I mean, there's there's a lot of demand continually for aluminium. You'll still need steel. Gladstone does a lot of other things in terms of heavy industry. I still think it can be a, a significant hub for Australia and it could continue to grow. Uh, that, that's why I think that it does need you know, more gas in terms of a pipeline uh, as a feedstock uh, and as a source of energy. There's, there's lots of ways to do this and critical minerals is another space we just haven't got onto. But hmm. there's a $400 billion demand for lithium-ion batteries into the future. Well, we want a pretty big chunk of that market because we hold most of the resource. Mm. Anyway, well, regardless of ASIL, I, I, I recommend you read it anyway. We, we might have a yak about it at some other point. Let's do water before you've got to run. Um, the easy so stuff. Let's do water. Well, <laughs> you don't have any easy stuff. That's like that's the bottom line, isn't it, really? So in the last parliamentary sitting, which bizarrely feels like a decade ago, even though it was only really a few weeks back, we saw the Nats launch something of a parade on the floor of the House of Representatives around water legislation that you had put forward as the Water Minister. Now, I opened up this conversation by asking you that question about Cabinet, whether you're bound by Cabinet solidarity, uh, not not because I'm a smart ass, but because I genuinely want to know. And uh, this is relevant to water. Because obviously the government's line or the government's position is that, uh, you know, that we've got the plan. We've got the, we're committed to the plan. We, we, we move some chess pieces around in the plan, but we've got the plan. Whereas some of your colleagues, I think, had chucked the plan out the window of a fast-moving bus if given the opportunity. So what is your view? Uh, well, look at the time that went through. I was in the Cabinet. <laughs> I absolutely believe in Cabinet solidarity. Uh, my, my view on this stuff is pretty straightforward. I, I, I do what's, what's practical, what works, what I can get done. Yeah, this, is, this is the game which is the art of the achievable. Uh, and right now, I mean, the basin is actually in pretty good condition 
storages are quite high. There's been significant rainfall. It's actually really, really wet. And they're, they're looking at a bumper season, particularly through Western New South Wales. And, you know, the ex-farmer in me just thinks that's fantastic. Uh, after all of that really tough period, uh, here's a chance where they'll get a go to potentially get some money in the tin. And I, I just think that's wonderful. Well, it but is fantastic. Of, yeah. yeah. Why the performance art? Because it's sort of like... Uh, and obviously you were the you were the minister. I'm not putting you in the performance art camp, um, but it sort of seemed very strange to me that you would stage this battle, which the Nats lost in both chambers, on an issue that I mean, water is important in the regions all the time. I'm not suggesting that uh, you know that it waxes and wanes because it doesn't. Water is essential to food production, so people are worried about this all the time. But as you say, it's actually been raining. Like why? Why I don't I don't get it. Can you can you interpret this strange custom, custom this this behaviour for me? Why would you pick a fight on water that you can't win in the middle of a of a decent rain season? Well, the first point I want to make, Catherine, is the legislation passed, <laughs> and we'll have an independent <laughs> inspector general by the end of the week. <laughs> Firstly, that's a good thing. Uh, secondly, I mean that there are parts of the basin plan uh, which are localised and very difficult for local members. Uh, because there are elements which directly impact uh, just their constituency. As a local member, I completely understand why they're concerned about it uh, and I absolutely support their right to get in a fight about what matters to their people. I do it all the time. So I, I, I'm never going to argue with them about those things. Mm. So that was something they, they thought was important. That's why they put it forward. Uh, as you pointed out, I was a member of the Cabinet at the time and the Minister responsible uh, and I support the government's position and, and still do. Right. So I'm working my way through uh, over a period of time now to try and rebalance the plan and refocus it on those communities which are at the heart of the plan itself, uh, particularly the ones that have been severely impacted by water buybacks. So I've ruled out any further buybacks. Uh, we've reallocated over a billion dollars. It's roughly $1.4 billion from what was known as an on-farm pro uh, on program to off-farm uh, because I quite simply think that's something that will work. And in the last couple of years, that program had recovered a handful of megalitres instead of gigalitres. And we think we can get up, up to 150 gig now under that program and those things are being developed. We've managed to get New South Wales to finally put forward all their water resource plans. Now, they've all gone back <laughs> to be reassessed, but that's the same process that happened in the other states. And if we can get those things tied up, if we can get some monitoring uh, in terms of the northern basin, particularly floodplain harvesting, uh, covered with some uh, metering and monitoring, which people believe is transparent and they believe, I think that will go a long way as ad adding in the independent inspector general, a long way to giving people in the basin confidence about what is actually happening uh, because nothing hurts you more than a rumour uh, and nothing is more scary than something that you're, you're unsure of. So we need to get certainty, transparency and trust back in to the basin plan and that's what I'm trying to do. But won't it, uh, and look, I, it, very sound principles, obviously, to just uh, take away the rumour mill, right, and, and set up some structures, some governance structures that people have some confidence in. It, it should make a difference. You'd hope it would. But uh, fundamentally, though, the resource is finite. Uh, there are different interests at different points of the Murray-Darling system. It, we saw, uh, again, I, I don't want to labour the what happened a few weeks ago because you've been clear about your own position, but the, a view was put by a couple of your colleagues that uh, they don't really need fresh water at the, at the end in South Australia now because rising sea levels will take care of the bottom of the lakes. I mean, 
like, have you got a magic wand? Like, how do you how do you sort out those? Uh, well, that fundamental dynamic that people at the bottom of the river think people at the top of the river are, you know, having a lend to them, basically. Well, Catherine, I think the quote you're looking for is upstream are thieves and downstream are wasters. That tends to be the, the general. <laughs> Thank that's, you, Piffy. That's, yes. that's the one I hear about. Uh, but, I mean, it's been ever thus. So, in my view, the way to deal with this is one piece of the puzzle at a time. Uh, and I think, you know, there are other ways uh, that we can manage to get the outcomes that people desire, need and want uh, that, that are not necessarily all about water. I mean, I, I still see complementary measures as a really important part of what we do uh, and how that might deliver outcomes for the environment uh, that don't require, you know, very large amounts of water to be rushed down from somewhere else. Uh, there's more than one way to get the outcome that you want, uh, and, and we're looking at a lot of different options. But you know, we remain committed, and we're delivering. But one of them is not chucking out the plan. Oh, no, no, that's that's correct. I mean, these things yeah. will always ebb and wane, and there'll be slight changes. And uh, you know, to be frank, it's one of the most diabolical pieces of legislation I've ever seen put together. It, it, it's mm. very, very, it's very complex. To, yeah, yeah, and hard to work within. Uh, and you know, where, where you're looking to get some common sense outcomes, uh, it, it can be restrictive in places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're working within the frameworks that I've got. Uh, I've got New South Wales have given us commitments to rescoping a couple of the big projects, uh, particularly at Menindee and Yanko, uh, and I think that's important. Uh, and we've come from a point where they weren't doing much of anything. So mm. uh, every step forward is a step towards progress. Okay. Well, let's end on a on a positive note. You've given us an optimistic note. Every step forward is a step towards progress. Thank you for making the time, Keith. I appreciate it in a busy sitting week. Uh, thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of the show, and to Alison Chan, who's producing this episode. Thank you to you guys for listening. If you're enraged by Keith, you can find him on social media. If you're enraptured by Keith, you can find him on social media. And likewise with me, uh, be good. We'll see you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.